John chapter 7, and we're going to actually try to study an entire chapter together. It's, if you were to read the chapter, it's about seven minutes long, and uh, there's a lot here, a lot here, but it's pretty straightforward. It's a story of the Lord really trying to reach the people. You know, that's really the ultimate reason why John wrote this uh, letter, this book, is because he wanted people to be saved. You know, uh, I was uh, reading a a story about a guy named Greg Lamond. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He is a cyclist. He was the first American ever to win the Tour de France. Now, the Tour de France is an incredible uh, bike race, um, 2,200 miles. And so it's a crazy bike race. He's the first American ever to win. And uh, he has an interesting story that parallels with our study today. Because um, he won in 1987. But then what happened is he went hunting that same year. And he was shot uh, accidentally with a shotgun. So 30 pallets went into his body. And so he almost died. He went to surgery. They were able to re take out, remove 30 of those pallets from vital organs, um, but 30 remained within him and two even in the lining of his heart. And so this guy uh, was, uh, was proclaimed a hero because even first American to win, getting shot two years later, guess what? He won again. He won again in 1989. The reason I remember that year is because that's the year I was saved. And so he, got, he, he, he won again. He was a hero. Everybody thought so highly of him. But then he fell from hero to zero. You want to know how? Because when Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France, and some of you guys remember Lance Armstrong, I think he won like seven times. He said Lance Armstrong is doping. Lance Armstrong is cheating, and the whole world, the whole world hated Greg LeMond for telling the truth because they didn't believe him, and it took 12 years, and he lost almost everything, but it took 12 years for the truth to finally come out, and in one sense, it kind of goes with our study today because, you know, Jesus just comes, and he just tells the truth. I mean, at one, the beginning, he's great. Everybody loves him. But then all of a sudden, the religious leaders start, you know, opposing him. They don't like the way he's still in the crowds. There's, they don't like him because they're of the devil and he's of God. It's as simple as that. And he is just hated by everyone. And even today, he is still hated. We are still hated if we're like him. But one day, the truth will be revealed. And we're going to see how this works for us. Even in John chapter 7, it's a really awesome chapter. Look what we read. It says in, in verse 1 that after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And so after these things, um, some people believe, like for example, have you guys ever heard of Haley's Bible Handbook? Have you guys heard of it? A year and a half. It's been a year and a half since he's been in Jerusalem. That's how long he had been distancing himself from this city because they wanted to kill him. You might remember the events that we read in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 because Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day. The Jews then wanted to kill him. 
But we're not sure. Some say a year and a half. Others say it's been six months. But Jesus has been walking in Galilee, it says. He's been ministering there in Galilee, not down south in Judea, not in Jerusalem, because the Jews sought to kill him. And so we read in verse 2, now the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And so the, the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand for us to be right around September time, uh, six months before he was to die. And so the Feast of Tabernacles uh, was something that the Jews, they actually, Josephus said it was like their greatest feast. They would come together as Jews and they would celebrate basically the way the Lord had provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness. It's also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Sukkot. And so during this uh, seven-day feast, which then had a uh, celebration on the eighth day, um, during this feast, they would actually build booths, you know, going outside for us. It would be kind of like the equivalent of a tent, but they made it out of the tree limbs, and they would actually um, celebrate by camping outside uh, for seven days. And so it was a big feast. It was one of three that were required for the Jews uh, to, to attend. And so, um, again, Jesus is avoiding Jerusalem, but now the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand, and his brothers say, hey, you, you should go to the feast. Even though it was dangerous, even though the Jews sought to kill him, his brothers were saying, hey, you say you want to be famous, basically is what they're saying right there. You're, you're a Messiah, and you, know, you, you want to be famous. You want people to be known. You want, you want to be esteemed. That's not going to happen in the northern portion of Israel, in Galilee. It's going to happen only there, in, in Jerusalem. And so in one sense, I think what his brothers were doing, were they, they were being sarcastic. We know that in the beginning days, his brothers didn't believe in him. You know, eventually uh, James would, uh, Jude would, but up to this point, it's interesting how, how they don't believe in him. And so you know, one of the things about Jesus that you're going to see in the Gospels, and I think it's important for us to have the same mentality, is that he lived every single day of his life according to his father's calendar. He would not be manipulated or moved out of his father's will, not even for a moment. And so as they're saying, hey, you should go, you should go now, you should go immediately, he responds. Notice in verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Jesus basically said, you know, right now is not the right time for me, um, but you guys, you can go anytime is basically what he says. And it's interesting because as the Lord then shares in verse 7, it's something that I think we really need to take to heart. That the world, 
the world will eventually and inevitably hate us if we're like Jesus, who was willing to tell them the truth. You know, his brothers at that point, they weren't saved. His brothers at that point, they were in conjunction with the world. They were in league with the devil. There are some of you here who are being persecuted. Some of us here that are being persecuted. And, and then maybe it frustrates you. Maybe you wonder why. You want to know why? Because you're, you're a Christian and you love God. And, and you can maybe explain certain things and this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, it's because the devil hates you. And the world, according to 1 John 5.19, is under the sway of the devil. And therefore, the world hates us. Right here, the Lord even tells us why. He says the, the reason they hate us is because we testify of it that its works are evil. You know, if we don't conform to their lies, if we're willing to inform them, hey, that's sin that you're doing, and that sin will separate you from God. That in God's eyes, for example, marriage is between a man and a woman. That we as human beings were created male or female, nothing else. That life begins at the moment of conception. That sex is to be enjoyed only in the marriage bed. You know, that the Bible is God's word. That Jesus is God's son and the only way to heaven. That morals and good intentions and mere religion will never get you into heaven. We, we tell them these things and they eventually and inevitably will hate us. You know, this whole non-binary gender generation, you know, and I understand, I, you know, people can go through different things and I'm not trying to be, you know, an individual without compassion, but, you know, they say, you know, whatever, the hardware doesn't match the software. We have to beware. What does God say? You know, the other day I was reading about a seven-year-old little girl who heard from her friend that, seven years old, seven years old, and her friend told her that it's okay to have two daddies at home. Seven years old, and her friend told her that it's okay for a boy to dress as a girl. So, So we come as a church and we say, no, it's not okay. God made you male or female, and that if you have a little boy, raise him as a little boy. And if you have a little girl, raise her as a little girl. And when that little girl or that little boy goes to school and they get lied to and they're 10 years old, we're the parent. Do not strip our children from us and remove our parental authority. You know, when we say simple things like that, eventually and inevitably, you know, they're going to hate us. But you know what we do? We just keep loving them. We know that if we're hated and if we're persecuted, and I, and I had to come to grips with this even recently, like if we're persecuted, then we're in good company. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was hated. Jesus says it here. He'll say it again in John 15, 18 through 19, in 1 John 3, verse 13. He said it in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. I mean, you know, it's crazy how some Christians and some pastors, that's really their goal. I just want everyone to like me rather than saying, I just got to tell the truth. And so the Lord tells his brothers, you can go. I have a schedule. You're just do whatever you want. 
You know, you, you're of the world and they're not going to hate you, but they hate me because I testify of it that its, that its works are evil. I believe they were being sarcastic with Christ. And so what he does is he puts his unbelieving, compromising brothers in their place and he tells them they're free to go while he lingered a little longer in Galilee. But it says in verse 10 that after his brothers went, Jesus also went. We read here, it says, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. And then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. And so, you know, it's a dangerous situation. He's not supposed to die until the Passover. And so you might wonder, why did he go? Why did he go to Jerusalem? And really the answer is, he went to teach and he went to reach out to people. That's why he ended up going. After his brothers went up, he went up a, a little longer, but he doesn't go uh, immediately and make himself known. He kind of lays low. And while he's there, they're at the feast, the religious leaders are looking for him. Where is he? Where is he? They probably had spies everywhere, right? And so while all this is going on, one of the things you'll see is that, man, Jesus divides. There is this crazy division uh, even in those days we see it today but they were having their private conversations everyone's talking about him he was trending high on social media so to speak and uh even as we see today the nation is divided and they were complaining murmuring grumbling they were whispering is really what it says uh, and to some who were open to the obvious the evidence was overwhelming he is good he really is the christ the son of the living god the savior of the world, but to those who closed their eyes and stopped their ears and hardened their hearts and feared the religious leaders, they said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. But all these conversations were under wraps because they were afraid. Basically what had happened is they said, if anyone confesses him as the Christ, if anyone follows him, then he will be thrust out of the synagogue. And so that's where they were. But then the time comes. It says in verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Now, again, when you read about the feasts in Leviticus 23 and other places, you'll find it was a seven-day feast, and then the eighth day, there was a holy convocation. And so this is about four, the fourth day into it, it says in the middle of the feast, Jesus just went up into the temple and, and he taught. And, you know, everybody's listening, no doubt. The religious leaders are there as well. And they're marveling. They're like, wow, how does this guy have so much knowledge? How does he know letters having never studied? Now, in those days, they would train their rabbis as they sat under other rabbis. 
And they were amazed. How does Jesus know these things? He's never been to our schools. He's never sat under any of our rabbis. And so they marveled at his teaching. But the beautiful thing that the Lord, is, he shares here, and is so important for us to understand, is even Jesus Christ, he, he says, the doctrine's not mine. The, the, the doctrine is my Father's. What I'm sharing with you is not my word, it's God's word. And that's why it's so important that you wish the world and sometimes even the church would understand the significance of this. This is why we as pastors are called, we're commanded to teach the text, to teach the Bible. Sometimes you get guys and they come and they you know, open up the chapter, but they don't teach it. Then they talk about all these other things. No, teach the text, because it's not your message, it's not my message. Even Jesus said, it's not my message, it's my Father's message. The doctrine that I have, I'm getting from Him. And He says, when an individual wants to glorify God, they just teach the text. When they want to glorify themselves, they teach what they want to teach. And that's wrong. That's wrong. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. He says in verse 15, the, the Jews marveled. How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And this is so, and another great principle in verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. You know, there's people that go to church they're not really interested in doing God's will. But right there he says, if anyone wants to do his will. You know, some people, they'll come and they already got their mind made up that after church they're going to go and engage in sexual sin. After church they're going to go and watch pornography. After church they're going to go and do whatever they want to do. Or, you know, they come once in a while. And, but when, when you have an individual who just says, I just want to do God's will in my life. Not when it's just convenient. No, we're bond servants. And he commands us to do that. If that's your heart and you want to do, that's all you want, I just want to do God's will, then you will know. It says right here, then you will know that this message that Jesus gives is from the Father. That, that's what he's saying, and that's why it's so important that we start there. Let me ask you a question. Are you here with a heart that says, I want God's will. I want to do God's will. Because if you don't have that heart, then you can't come to the spiritual understanding that you need in your life. Again, he says right there, <laughs> He who speaks in verse 18 from himself, they, they seek their own glory. Those are those guys that teach their own message. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. That's the Lord. And no unrighteousness is in him. You know, what we find is the Lord is giving us uh, the understanding that we as teachers and even Jesus Christ as a messenger was simply a, a delivery person from the Father. You know, in one sense, I've heard it described that we are waiters, not cooks. We are messengers, not manufacturers. If I long for the glory of God, I will give God's message, not mine. I have to have that heart. 
That's where Jesus, where did this guy get this? One of the things you'll find too in life is that the, the messages that are most powerful are the ones where you're able to say, that which I receive from the Lord, I delivered to you. And that's where Jesus got his doctrine. You know, later on, the same thing would kind of be true. It's a little different, but it would be the same with the apostles. They didn't go to school. They didn't get trained by, you know, the University of Jerusalem. They didn't have a doctrine in theology. But when, you know, the, the religious leaders saw them, it says in the book of Acts chapter 4, they, they said, wow, these guys are untrained and uneducated, but they spoke so powerfully. How did that happen? And the answer was, they had been with Jesus. And that's the key. You know, we get this doctrine, whatever. You know, we get these messages, the letters, the knowledge, the insight, the grace, because it comes from God, and hopefully it goes through his vessels. But the Lord here, he, he says, speaking of the Bible, and speaking of messengers, look at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Whoa, that's a heavy indictment. These are the guys that lived, that prided themselves. Well, we do the Bible. No, he says, no, you don't. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus asks. And the people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. It's actually from, from Abraham, right? And you, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, now real quick, I, before we explain this, I hope I just want you guys, myself included, I want to keep everything in context. Remember here, we're not just reading about an argument that Jesus had with the religious leaders, uh, what we're reading is his heart to reach people. His heart to reach people. And yeah, he would correct them. And yes, they had their exchanges. But please, don't miss that. That ultimately, we're, we're trying to, to rationalize. We're trying to come and let us reason that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that if you're here today and you're struggling and you're just living in religion, you're distant from God or you have an emptiness inside, that Jesus, Jesus is here because he loves you and wants to reach you. So it's not, not just arguments, it, it's rationale, it's, it's reasoning. And the Lord tells them, you know, you, you love Moses, but you're not really keeping the law. You guys actually want to kill me think about that that's where hatred will lead it will lead to a heart of murder and so imagine they tell god you have a demon that's what they told john the baptist too it says there in verse 20 they said to him he has a demon who's seeking to kill you and here they are everybody knew it everyone knew it but now those who were guilty of it were denying it why because when you have a demon when they're the ones with the demon when they're the ones who are led by lucifer they lie and so they, here they are they're just denying it and then the lord he he kind of like he's like come on it's like he says come on i i healed one man and and you're all you know hung up on that you know, let me talk to you a little bit about this. You guys are upset with me 
because I healed a man on the Sabbath day. Well, let's talk a little bit about circumcision. Now, circumcision, Moses gave you. Um, it actually originated from Abraham in Genesis 17, but then when Moses uh, instituted it as a command within the law, he said that you must circumcise your sons on the eighth day, okay? And so when you, you know, your child is born, your son is born, and then if the eighth day happens to fall on the Sabbath day, what do you do? You cut away the flesh. You do that on the Sabbath day. So if you're willing to do that on the Sabbath day, cut away flesh, why are you upset with me that I made a man's flesh whole on the Sabbath day? And again, all he's trying to do is wake them up. Wake them up from their spiritual stupor and your religious rules and regulations and understand what's happening in front of you. It's God. You know, some people even coming to church, they don't recognize this is God. God gathering us together. God giving us gifts and talents. God calling us into the ministry. God calling us to pray. God calling us to study his word. And that's where they were. They were so caught up in their traditions that they missed the very presence of God. He says there in verse 14 and 24, another very important principle, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Another version says, look beneath the surface so you can judge uh, correctly. You know, we have to look deeper. We really do. We have to look beneath the surface. So we can get hung up or stuck on man-made traditions and we can get lost on religion and rules and regulations. You know, I'm going to tell you guys something and I don't want you guys to take this the wrong way, but I'm just going to use this as an example. Uh, for me today, as a pastor, I guess, for me today, probably the closest thing to keeping the Sabbath is attending church service on Sundays. Now, there is no Sabbath law in the New Testament. Out of the Ten Commandments, it's the only one not repeated in the New Testament. In the New Testament, every day is equal. And one person esteems another day better than the other. And so it's not repeated in the New Testament. But if I were to say if there's anything like the Sabbath, it would be like Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings, how you guys come to church service. I do believe we need to be here, to show up in order to grow up, to have a heart to be a part of the church, the desire to gather with the church, to serve the church with your gifts and talents and contributions. In one sense, uh, wanting to be with the church proves you're part of the church. Like if you don't want to be here, then maybe you're not a Christian. That's how important church service is. And so if a person doesn't want to go to church, I, I think it's important. I'd actually question if they're really on their way to heaven, right? You read Hebrews 10, 25. Now, having said that, I have to, having said that, let's just say someone misses a Sunday. You guys miss a Sunday. And we find out it was because they had an opportunity as a surgeon to tend to someone who had two broken legs and provide the necessary care to mend those bones and set the casts in order to heal that person so that they could walk again. Let's just say you were a surgeon, you missed Sunday service because you had an opportunity to go help someone walk. Imagine that. 
And so then, you know, you come in the next Sunday and, and, and I'm like, hey, where were you last Sunday? And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, as a surgeon, I went and I did that and the other. And then I said, I, well, you know what? You deserve to die because you healed somebody on the Sabbath. That's how ludicrous this is. And that's how crazy religion is. I mean, think about it. I mean, they wanted to kill Jesus. What, what, what a possible explanation can you give to individuals who have strapped bombs onto their body and go into a, a setting of, filled with innocent people and detonate those bombs and to kill all those people saying that you're doing the work of God? And that's what Islam teaches in the Quran. If you take it literally, they think that they're going to then go to the highest of heavens. Is that God? Absolutely not. But this is the same spirit. This is what they want to do to Jesus. You have to be careful, you guys. You know, we have to look beneath the surface of all these rules and regulations that we can often make. So, so Jesus is here and he's teaching openly there in the temple. And it says in verse 25, now, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. You know, they're like, time out, wait a minute, this guy's teaching here, and isn't he the guy that they're seeking to kill? And he's just here out in the open speaking boldly. Maybe they change their minds about him. You know, one of the things that you'll see in this text is that these people were weak because they were so highly influenced by these religious leaders who were wicked. And so there, there's this debate going on, and you hear these conversations, and you hear that rumors. It sounds like a lot like today. You got all this, uh, all these fake, all the fake news, all the all the lies. I mean, it's crazy. And and so that's what they were engaged in. Um, it says in verse 27, we know where he's from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. I don't know where they got that from. <laughs> They must have heard it on some YouTube channel or something, you know? I mean, where in the world did they get that? No, I mean, later, even in the same chapter, we're going to say they, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. They just didn't know where he was from. They didn't, you know, judge underneath the surface. They didn't really do the investigation. But, but as Jesus is there crying out in the temple, he says, you, you both know me and, and you know where I'm from. And what is he saying there? He says, deep, deep down inside of you, you know. You know who I am. You know I'm the Christ. You know I'm the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18. You know I'm the messenger. You know I'm the, 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 the son of God. You know. You know where I'm from. You know I'm from heaven. They, they knew it, but they were suppressing that whole 
message that God was giving to them by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, but he says right there, but the problem is, is that he who sent me is true, that him you do not know. They, they did not know the Father. But Jesus said, I know him, for I'm from him, and he sent me. And therefore, what do they want to do? They always do the same thing. <laughs> they get violent. I just want to kill this guy. I just want to kill this. That's the way the devil is. And that's kind of how sometimes people are. They, when they can't reason, when they can't win the argument, they just, I mean, they just capitulate to the, f- to the flesh. Sometimes people get violent. They get physical. They wanted to arrest him. But it wouldn't happen because it says there in verse 30 that his hour had not yet come. Guys, just as a quick side note, I believe we all have an hour. We all have a day that, that we're supposed to die. God has it circled on his calendar and it's as precious in the sight of the Lord, the Bible says, is the death of his saints. But until then, there's what I would call the invincible principle. And that is that, you know, we're not able to die until God says. And so they can't get him because his hour has not yet come. We're protected by God until we're done with the race that we have to run. And so as all this is going on, people are talking and I'll bet you, during this time, the Lord is reaching people. And some of it's going to be true, some of it's superficial. But that's why Jesus went to Jerusalem, because he wanted to reach people. And that's why he's here today, because he wants to reach some of us. Some of you guys here, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to stop playing religion, stop playing church. Make a decision, are you for him or against him? For some of you here, it is the moment of decision to become a Christian. And for many of us here, it's the moment for us Christians to come in and be completely committed to him. Why are you holding back? Why, why won't you serve him the way that he's called you to? For some people, that's the calling and that's the invitation. And so as he's, all this is going on, it says in verse 31, many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? And the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers or temple guards to take him, to arrest him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. And then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me where I am, you cannot come? As as the Lord is beginning to, to reach the people, the Pharisees and these chief priests, they start hearing, no, no, we don't like any of that stuff. You guys know, huh, that the Pharisees were getting rich off the people. And so many times in the world, it comes down to that money. And so anyways, you know, they send the chief officers, they send the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus. And then Jesus just kind of tells them, listen, uh, you've got a little bit longer to make a decision because I'm going to be gone in just a moment. You know, what we find is the Lord is here telling them, I'm going to be leaving soon to a place, and, I, and you need to know this, you will not be allowed to come where I go. 
And that's a heavy thought because we now know exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about heaven. That Jesus would die six months later, rise again, and then after you know, 40 days, he would ascend up into heaven. And he's saying, I'm on my way to heaven, and you're not going to be able to go to heaven. Heavy. Just a little while longer. How much longer do you have to make that type of decision? And what we find the Lord telling them, what, what do they do? It's like they do so frequently in the Gospel of John. They're just teaching, they're thinking of earthly things. So where is he going? Is he going to grow, go to the dispersion? And what we find is the Jews had been dispersed throughout the world. And so are they, is he going to go there and teach the, the, those who have been dispersed? Or maybe the Greeks, the heathen? That when he talks about the Greeks, he's talking about the non-Jews. Is that what he's going to do? No, he wouldn't. His apostles would. But he's just going to heaven. And he's trying to tell them right here, hey, you guys need to make a decision. That may have been the end of that conversation on that day. But then on the last day, it would actually continue. It says in verse 37, uh, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood out and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so, you know, there's a lot here. In, at, during the Feast of Tabernacles, remember, it is them celebrating the way that God had sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years. And you guys might remember in Exodus chapter 17, when they didn't have water, God told Moses to strike the rock and the water would come. And that is symbolic of Jesus being struck on the cross and the Holy Spirit given. And so uh, during the feast, every day what the priests would do is they would go down, they would fill the water jugs, they would go down the steps, up the steps, and they would pour the water and it would just flow down like crazy and splash all over the people. It was symbolic of the way the Lord had provided for them uh, during their 40 years in the wilderness, Right? And so it was a beautiful picture. But then on the eighth day, like I said, there would still be a holy convocation. They didn't do that. And the reason they didn't do that is because once you entered into the promised land, there was no need for that type of water. Now there would be a perpetual source of water given to them in the promised land. And so it was at that point that Jesus then gets up and he, he just extends the invitation. He says, if anyone here is thirsty, let him come to me. And out of his heart will flow torrents of living water. And John goes on to explain what that is. is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And, and what the Lord is saying, and basically what we find Christianity is, it's an invitation from God. It's just an invitation. Recently, I got an invitation to a wedding. And I'm either going to go, yes, or I'm not going to go, no. It's the same thing when it comes to Christianity. It's an invitation from him. Either yes, 
Are you going to go? Yes. Are you going to submit? Yes. Are you going to believe? Or no? You know, Jesus said, if you're thirsty, if you're thirsty. Now, um, I was thinking about this. In those days, it was different. In those days, they probably got thirsty. It was harder to get water. We have water everywhere. So when, honestly, when was the last time you were really thirsty? I mean, for most of us here, it's probably been a long time. Maybe you did a, a long walk or a run or something. But for the most part, the whole concept of being thirsty might be hard to put your finger on. But I was thinking about how in, in my life and in, in the life of the world that we see today, it, with this thirst, this, this, this quest for satisfaction, this quest really is for peace. Peace contentment, satisfaction. We don't have that. The world doesn't have that. You can take in everything the world has to offer and it won't give you peace. It won't give you content. You'll never be content. It will never satisfy you. And you can look to that person, oh, oh, one day when I'm going to get married or or whatever, you know, that pastor, that child, or whatever, that, that position, the ambition, whatever it is. I'll tell you what, if you look to any of those things, none of those things will ever give you peace, satisfaction, contentment. And I was thinking about this one gal recently. She was a star of a, of a movie show, um, and, and she died through overdose. And it was just heartbreaking as I was reading the, the article. I'm, I was thinking, man, there's this, this, this mom. She has a, a little girl. She's only six months old. And, and the dad also is now dead. And, and then you're like, wait a minute, time out. They have everything this world has to offer, but they don't have peace. They don't have contentment. They don't have satisfaction. What is it? They're thirsty. And what we find is Jesus, Jesus is the only one, my friend, that can satisfy that thirst within us. You know, we see it in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for the water, so pants my soul for you, O Lord. We see it in Jeremiah. He says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've made these little things that can hold no water, thinking that'll quench their thirst, and it won't. When, when you come to the Lord, and it's just really, like I said earlier, there's no one else who can do it. There's nothing else that can do it. It has to be you and Jesus. When you go to Jesus, then he will pour his Holy Spirit in you, and his Holy Spirit will flow through you. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you want? We have to come to that. When Jesus died on the cross, the Holy Spirit was then made available to the world. And so in verse 40, therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, they said, truly, this is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Others said, this is the Christ. That's a huge statement. You know, but, but some said, well, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? And so there was a division among the people. 
because of him. Like I said earlier, they were not doing their research or you know, going deeper investigation. He did come from Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says that. They were right. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. And he was there in Galilee. But his origin was from heaven. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. And then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? (laughs) And the temple guards officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. And again, I I just, man, imagine what it must have been like to sit under a teaching of Jesus. When you look at the Greek language here, they are acknowledging through his mere message that he was more than a man. He says, have any of the rulers, and they were upset, verse 47, then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I'll tell you what, I remember one time I heard a pastor, it was a pastor saying uh, at a conference, what can I learn from these guys? Because they were younger than him. Oh man, perish the thought that we ever come to a place where we as leaders are not teachable. You know, they're, they're like, well, have any of the other rulers or, you know, scholars believed in him? No, the people do. You needed to see the, the grassroots effort. Sometimes leaders need to be led. But then Nicodemus interjects in verse 50, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, he said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And they answered and they said to him, are you also from Galilee? It's a derogatory statement. Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. You guys know Nicodemus, uh, he was a follower. He knew in John chapter 3 that Jesus did indeed come from God. And he would uh, stand up and be brave eventually. Right here, he's kind of defending him. On paper, they were just. But uh, in practice, they weren't. You know, if only they listened to their own advice. They said, search there in verse 52. Search and look. And if they did, they would find that he was born in Bethlehem. And if they would open their hearts, they would discover that he actually did come from God. You know, when you look at this invitation, that's really what this is. This is why Jesus went to Jerusalem. He didn't have to go because he wasn't scheduled to die until the following Passover. But he did because there were certain individuals there that he wanted to reach And that's what I believe today, that there are certain individuals here that God wants to reach. I pray that we would know this is an invitation from God. And I I pray that you guys, that we would all come to this place, uh, that we serve God. Do you guys know that if you do, you're going to be hated? Are you okay with that? Some people are, no, no, I want everybody to like me. (laughs) Well, what about God? Don't you want to please him? Let me close with this story. I don't know if you've ever heard of John uh, Galbraith. He, he wrote a biography, and in it he talks 
about his, uh, his housekeeper, Emily Gloria Wilson. He said it had been a weary day, and I asked Emily to hold all the telephone calls while I took a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House. Get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson, he said. Well, he's sleeping, Mr. President. He told me not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. You know what she said? No, Mr. President. I work for him, not for you. (laughs) He said, when I called the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. And he said, tell me who that woman is. I want her for the White House. Who do you serve? Who do you work for, so to speak? God. Pray you know that and pray it would be reflected in your life.